Let's open our Bibles together this morning to the book of Joshua. This is the first book in a new section. We have been covering the Pentateuch, which is the first five, first five books of the Bible. And now we are moving into the prophets. These are the uh, former, uh, Joshua would be considered a former prophet. And then they have the later prophets, that, the ones that we normally think about in being uh, the major and the minor prophets. But Joshua is actually considered a part of the prophetic books. And it is continuing right on where we left off in the book of Deuteronomy. We marched through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and saw how God created the world, how, he, how the world fell into sin, how his people continually rebelled, and we see the flood, we saw the Tower of Babel, but we always saw God renewing his covenant with his people, and there was always a remnant that was obeying God and following God and trusting in God. The Bible tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God uh, showed him favor and used him to preserve human life through the ark, which was a picture of the cross, and uh, which, which protected them from the judgment of God. And he blessed them, promised to never again flood the world, destroy the world with a flood, and gave us the rainbow as a sign of that promise. The rainbow has so much importance and so much biblical significance. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age, people use God's symbols to represent the complete opposite. But we don't need to be afraid of a rainbow because a rainbow reminds us every single time we see it that God is powerful, that God is good, that God is gracious, that God is merciful, and that he loves us. So we see that God preserved the world. We see that moving forward, God made a covenant with Abraham and called him. And the rest of the story of the Old Testament is God's dealing with Abraham's descendants. So we saw how God predicted that they would go into captivity in Egypt, that he would rescue them after 400 years, and that he would bring them into the land. Well, Moses arose as God's prophet, and he led the people out of Egypt, but the people continually complained, as we saw in the book of Numbers. They continually complained. They reject, rejected God's uh, leadership and his promise to protect them going into the promised land, and so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and an entire generation died, all except for two men. Joshua and Caleb. They were the, the two sp spies that actually had gone into the land and brought back a good report when the other ten went into the land and brought back a negative and a fearful report. So we're picking up the story, and I want us to look, first of all, in the book of Joshua at the storyline. Now you need to know a few things about Joshua as we move into this story. In Numbers chapter 13 verse 16, Moses changes Joshua's name. His original name was Hoshua or Hoshia, and that means salvation. Well, in Numbers 13, 16, Moses changes his name to Yehoshua, which means the Lord is salvation. And Yehoshua is the same name as Yeshua. It's just shortened 
a little bit. Yeshua would have been the name of Jesus. Jesus and Joshua are the exact same name. And the reason that we call Jesus Jesus instead of Joshua or Yeshua is because the name Yeshua was transliterated from the Hebrew into the Greek and the Greek name is Eosis, which transliterated into English is Jesus. And that's why we call him Jesus. Another very practical name, another very practical reason we call Jesus Jesus rather than Joshua is because while Joshua is a type of Jesus, Jesus is in a class of his own. And there's no other biblical hero from the Old Testament that could be confused with that name. As a matter of fact, there's a place in the New Testament where Jesus and Joshua are interchanged. And he calls Jesus Joshua, talking about how he led his people. And it's a little bit confusing when you read it. It's hard to tell who he's, which person he's talking about, but he's actually talking about Jesus. And that's because it's the exact same name. Joshua, his first appearance was in Exodus chapter 17, and we see that he is a warrior. He is leading the army of the Lord for Moses, and he is a fierce fighter. Uh, he becomes Moses' assistant, and the name assistant isn't just like an intern or someone who just kind of does a little insignificant task. The, the word assistant in the Old Testament Hebrew is the same as ministering angel. So think of the significance of how important Joshua was to Moses. He was like a ministering angel. He was a messenger. He fulfilled and helped him at every turn. He was Moses' right hand, and he became Moses' successor. And it's important to know that God chose Joshua to be Moses' successor. We see this in Numbers chapter 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man who, in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And Moses, in verse 23, lays his hands on Joshua and commissions him as the Lord directed Moses. So the book of Joshua covers 25 to 30 years. We believe that Joshua was 80 years old when, we, when he began leading. Remember, he was probably around 40 years old when they came up to the promised land the first time he was sent in as a spy, came back, said, we can take the land. God is fighting for us. And the people rejected that, believed the 10 spies that brought the negative report. And so for 40 years, Joshua and Caleb wandered in the wilderness and saw all of that generation die, every single person. And then the children that, that were raised up in the wilderness were the ones that would have gone into the land. And we see that Joshua dies at the end of the book of Joshua when he is about 110 years old. So now we get to the exciting part. The story of Joshua when I was a child was one of my favorite stories, probably right after the story of Joseph, which we find in the book of Genesis, the majority of the end of the book of Genesis. And the reason I love the book of Joshua and the reason uh, people throughout the centuries have found 
so much pleasure in reading this book is because it's exciting. It's action. There's, there's fighting. There's war. There's promises. I remember as a child hearing the story and acting out the story of Joshua and the children of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho and singing songs about that and, and telling stories and hearing stories. And you remember flannel graph? I remember seeing the flannel graph. Joshua was played out on this board, and that was where it's like a cloth board, and you put these little paper figures up there that stuck to the board, and you can make these scenes. And it was, it was amazing when I was a child, and the story just came to life. I also had these books on tape that my parents would buy me, and I would go to bed at night and listen to these books. And I can remember a very specific time I was laying in bed. I think I was seven or eight years old, and I was laying in bed. I remember this like it was yesterday listening to the story of Joshua marching around the walls of Jericho. And I believe God gave me a, a vision as just a young boy of how powerful God was. I was listening to a cassette tape about the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. And I remember as a very young boy just being overwhelmed with how powerful God was, how amazing he was. And the word of God was coming to life for me as a young boy, which is why we obey God's command in Deuteronomy to pass the stories down to our children, to talk about it when we sit, when we rise up, when we're walking in the way, when we're coming in, when we're going out. We pass the stories on because it's the story of God. So as we look at the book of Joshua, there's some natural divisions in the book of Joshua, and the first section is where they cross into the land. And we see that in, in chapter 1 through chapter 5, verse 15, Joshua receives his marching orders. And he gives the marching orders to the people that he received from the Lord. He sends another group of spies into the land. And you remember the story of Rahab, the prostitute, who actually protected the spies and asked for God's grace and mercy. And God showed them grace. They escaped from the king who sent the soldiers looking for them and Rahab the harlot helped them escape and they went back and took back good news that the hearts of the people of, of Jericho were filled with fear because they saw the works of God. Remember that Israel crossed the Jordan and God parted the waters of the Jordan and they crossed over on dry land. The ark, the priests carried the ark and when they stepped in the waters parted and they stood in the middle and all the people crossed. Then the priests brought the ark of God and they celebrated God's power. And they set up memorial stones to how awesome God was. And it's very reminiscent of when the people crossed the Red Sea. And how God delivered them out of Egypt and from Pharaoh and his armies. So they crossed the Jordan Israel renews the covenant with God, or God renews the covenant with Israel, and Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's armies, which is what the song we sang this morning was about. He meets a man. He sees a man standing there with a sword. And we're going to cover this in a moment, but he sees a man standing there and finds out it is the commander of the Lord's army. And we believe from the way Scripture tells the story, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus is the true commander of all of God's armies. And he is the one who appeared, we believe, to Joshua. It wasn't just an ordinary angel. It was the pre-incarnate Jesus 
who met with him. And, and we're going to cover that conversation. The second part, the second section, is where they take the land, starting in chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 12, verse 24. And this is where Joshua goes into the land, obeys the commander of the Lord's army, goes in and does exactly what God commanded. Instead of attacking Jericho, they line up in the order that God told them by tribe. The priests were first with the Ark of the Covenant and they were blowing the, the trumpets and, and marching around the walls one time each day. And on the seventh day, they marched around seven times, blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. And they destroyed the city and they conquered the city. It's a paradigm for victory for God's people. And the reason they were victorious was because God fought for them. They didn't bring the walls down. They simply obeyed what God told them to do. And God conquered the city. God destroyed their enemies. And they did what he said. The walls fell down and they went in and fought the battle in the power of the Lord. And this paradigm for victory is a paradigm of obedience. If we want to be victorious in the Christian life, we have to walk in obedience to God's revealed word, his revealed commands. And he has given us his word. We hold it in our hands this morning. This is God's word for God's people. And if we want to be victorious, the Bible tells us we're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. He fought our battles for us. We're saved. We're delivered. We're commissioned. We're called. We just have to walk in obedience. Then the very next story, that was chapter 6, the very next story in chapter 7, we see that they go from attacking this very large city, Jericho, and defeating it without any problems whatsoever, to attacking a very small city that destroys, wipes them out. Not totally wipes out Israel, but many of their soldiers, they, they defeated them, sent them running in defeat. Many people died and they found out it was because there was disobedience in the people of Israel. Achan had sinned and had stolen what belonged to the Lord. And many people died because of his sin. In the next chapter, chapter eight, Israel deals with the sin of Achan and his family and Obey what God tells them to do, which is very hard for us to read because Achan and his family were stoned and were killed because of their disobedience. It's very reminiscent to what happens in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, God does this wondrous miracle and the church is moving forward. And then what happens in the middle of all this awesome stuff that's happening? Ananias and Sapphira basically lie to the Holy Spirit and lie to the church and God kills them. There are a lot of parallels between Joshua and the book of Acts. I don't have a lot of time to talk about that this morning, but we see the same thing happening where it's not the norm for God to kill people when they disobey. And we're going to see that this morning, how patient God is, how long suffering God is. He gave the people of the land 400 years to repent, to turn and to obey him. And they did not. So when the people of Israel cross into the land, many of them are annihilated and wiped out. So Israel deals with the sin of Achan and they're victorious over Ai. The next chapter, chapter 9, we see that there's, there's this group of people called the Gibeonites. They trick the people of Israel. 
and they actually covenant with Israel, which Joshua and the people of Israel weren't supposed to covenant with the pagan nations, but through deceit, they did. God honors that covenant and protected the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites did that because they were afraid. They feared God, which showed wisdom on their part. And so in chapter 10, Joshua defends Gibeon and he moves and takes, conquers the south. In chapter 11 and 12, he conquers the north and then they take an inventory of the kings, the enemy kings that we see in the book of Joshua that they had defeated. The next section, after they cross into the land, they conquer the land. The next section in chapter 13 through verse 21 is dividing the land. And this is the allotments for the eastern territories, the western territories, and the provisions for justice and worship in chapter 20 and 21. So there's like nine chapters where we see God talking about the division of the land. And as we read through these chapters, this is some of the chapters in the Bible when we get to it in our reading plan, it's a little bit boring for us. I'm not saying it's boring, I'm saying it's boring for us because many times we don't grasp the significance. The significance that God devotes nine chapters to the divisions of the land and the, the giving of the inheritance to the people what had God promised for centuries throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the covenants? He made promises to the people. This is God fulfilling his promise. No wonder it's so important that he lists out these divisions. As a matter of fact, it was important for these divisions to stand because God tells the people that they're going to be driven out of the land from time to time when they disobey into exile and they're going to come back. So how are they going to know what land belongs to who? Because God gives it in the book of Joshua and he preserves his word. So this section is really important that they divide the land, but many times it's lost on us. The fourth section is Joshua's farewell speech and his death. And this deals with serving the Lord in the land. When Joshua gives his parting speech to the eastern tribes in chapter 22 and then to Israel's leaders in chapter 23 and then chapter 24 gives this farewell speech to the entire nation of Israel. He's telling them how to serve the Lord in the land and how important it is for them to keep God's law and obey God's law. He also tells them, you're not going to do it. And they say, yes, we're going to do it. He says, no, you're not going to do it. And you're going to be punished for it. But he says, keep God's law. Listen to what he says, what, what uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 44. It says, Moses came and recited all the words of the song in the hearing of the people, and he and Joshua, the son of Nun, and when Moses had finished speaking all the words to Israel, he said to them, take heart, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may do, be careful to do all the words of this law. Verse 47, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess it. I want to say to every single person in this building, young, middle-aged, older people, 
Every single one of us, God's word is no empty word for you. It's not some small, insignificant thing. It is your very life. This is the only hope of you living a successful life for God, for you living to what you were created to be as the image of God in this world, as a redeemed child of God. God's word is no empty word for you. It's not an afterthought. It's not a minor theme. It is the theme of the Bible. It's why Jesus came and lived and died so that we could have God's revealed word. And so that we could choose to believe in Jesus, believe in God's word and walk in obedience. There's two different extremes that people fall into when it comes to obeying God's word. One extreme is legalism where they're trying to earn God's favor by obedience. And we can never earn God's favor by obedience. We earn God's favor through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's work alone. Christ worked for our salvation. It is finished. He accomplished everything that needed to be done for us to be saved. We don't have to try to strive and work and obey to earn God's favor or salvation. Yet some people try to keep all the laws and the commandments and earn God's favor rather than trusting him by grace through faith. That's called legalism. There's another extreme where people say, Christ did it all. It is finished. He did everything. He perfectly obeyed God's commands. I'm a sinner, but I believe in Christ and I'm in Christ. Therefore, I don't have to obey anything. I can live any way I want to. I can sin as much as I want to. I can do whatever I want to because God's grace is going to cover it and I'm okay. That is wrong. That is sinful. That is not the the heart of a redeemed child of God that is speaking words like that. And Paul addressed that in Romans because the church was asking questions like that. Well, if, if, if sin abounds more than grace, then should we not sin more so that more grace can abound? And, and, Paul said, absolutely not. In no way. May it never be. But we are called, church, to obey God's word. To walk in obedience. Not to earn his favor, but because we already have his favor in Christ. We obey from acceptance, not for acceptance. It's important. All of the life of a child of God should be a life of obedience. None of us lives this out perfectly. That's why we repent. That's why we confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This next section I want us to move into is really important. And this is the difficult passages that we see in the book of Joshua. I had to deal with this because I believe this is the number one attack that is coming against the church, coming against God's word in our day and age. As you look throughout all history, you're going to see different attacks against God, different attacks against God's word. Men like Voltaire, philosophers, attacked God's truth, attacked God's word. And each age, it seems like, comes with comes up with a unique way to attack God's word. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Satan began the assault on God's word by saying, has God really said? He's questioning God's word. And all throughout history, he has done this. Well, in our age, there are multiple attacks against God's word to make people doubt 
and question whether or not God's word is true, whether or not this is actually God's inspired word or just another book written by a bunch of men. And in our day and age, I've seen multiple attacks. The biggest one I've seen was two things that we find in this book. One is why did God command slaughter of people and entire nations? Why did God command war and people to be slaughtered? My daughter was reading through, Elise was reading through her Bible plan last year and came across a passage and it shocked her. It, it shook her to the core and she reached out to me and we talked for a long time about this doesn't seem to line up with who God is, yet he's commanding these people to be wiped out. What is happening? We've got to have answers for this church. These are legitimate questions. The, the other question that I've seen raised and, and launched as an assault against the Bible and against God's character is it seems like some places in the Old Testament that slavery is accepted by God. And the answer to that is it's not. Slavery is not encouraged by God. It's not accepted by God. But God did give us, give the children of Israel rules and laws for how to operate within a society where slavery was accepted. And it was a reality for them. But through the power of the gospel that was revealed through Israel, through the person of Jesus Christ, ultimately Christianity and the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, were the ones who were raised up to see slavery abolished and continuing to fight against slavery around the world. But when God gives rules about slavery in the Old Testament, which most of the time when he's talking to his people, he's talking more of an indentured servanthood, not a slavery where people were kidnapped. That was absolutely, absolutely forbidden in the law of God for other nations to be kidnapped and enslaved. But we do see places where he gives guidelines for how servanthood should look, and people launch this as an attack against the church. So how do we deal with the difficult passages? Well, in Genesis 15... God told Abraham, he gave him like a 500-year forward prophecy of what was going to happen in the next 500 years. He said, your people are going to leave this land. Abraham was in Canaan. He said, your people are going to leave this land. They're going to go to, Israel, or to Egypt. They will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They will be set free. He tells them in Genesis 15 that when they leave the land, they will plunder the people of Egypt, spoil the people of Egypt. They did this when they left the land. They asked them for gold and silver and jewels, and the people of Israel were so afraid of them and so afraid of God that they gave them all of their wealth, the majority of their wealth. And the children of Israel went into the wilderness with gold and silver and cloth and all sorts of luxuries in abundance. And I want you to think about something. Think about the justice of God. This is important. This, this jumped out at me this week. And I don't know that I've ever seen it to this extent before. For 400 years, Israel in Egypt felt like God had forgotten about them. Felt like they were being treated unjustly. That they were having to work. They were not getting paid for their work. They were uh, in forced slavery. And it seems like God was allowing an injustice to happen in their world to them. 
Has anyone else in here ever felt like in your world, God is allowing injustice to happen to you? Like you're oppressed, like something is wrong and you feel like maybe God doesn't see you or God has forgotten you or maybe God's just not powerful enough to deliver you. But I want you to think about Israel plundering and spoiling the Egyptians when they left and they will, willingly gave them more wealth than they ever could have stored up or saved up by themselves if they had been paid for their work all those years in Egypt. Ultimately, think about this. They got their back pay for 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt. That's how just God is. That's how righteous God is. He is watching out for his people. And God always sets things right in his time. We may not see it in our lifetime. We may not understand it. But God is just and he's righteous. I want you to, I want to read this to you. From Genesis chapter 15, verse 12 through 16, because it's really important. He says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Listen to this. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is telling them, telling Abraham, that the Amorites who were wicked in Abraham's day, God is going to be patient with them for the next 400 years, give, giving them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, to turn from their sins, to be delivered, to be rescued. Yet they are going to persist in their sin. And at some point, God is going to say, I've had enough. They will be judged. They will be dealt with because he is the judge of all the earth. You remember when Cain killed Abel. The Bible says the blood of Abel called out to God for justice from the ground. The Bible also tells us that the victims in Sodom and Gomorrah, all those who were raped, all those who were victimized, all those who were oppressed, that their souls cried out to God for justice. And God came down to see what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. That gives us this clue that we may not see what God's doing behind the scenes, but God is not going to allow any injustice, any injustice to be not dealt with. He's not going to allow anyone to get away with their sin. Righteousness will be fulfilled. Justice will be served. So thinking about God commanding slaughter and war, I want to read two passages to you from Deuteronomy because the people that attack God and attack Scripture and attack the church, they never deal with these passages. They pick and choose verses that they think make God look bad, and that's all they talk about. And the people that they're talking to don't know the Bible, and they prove to them, they think, that the Bible is false, and many people have rejected God 
based on inaccurate, inaccurate and out of context information. So I want to read to you, church. This matters for us and for our discipleship. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. Listen to these words. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters and to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that's what God has to say. Very clear commands. But what about Deuteronomy chapter 20? He gives further commands that clarify this. He says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. God tells them to offer terms of peace to the lands, to the people that they are fighting against. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones and the livestock and everything else in the city all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourselves and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far away from you which are not cities of the nations here in the promised land. But listen to what God says. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance you shall save nothing, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so, you, so that you sin against the Lord your God. There's some teachers that believe differently about exactly how many people, how young the children were that were to be wiped out and how many were to be spared. According to this passage of Scripture in verse 16, Deuteronomy 20, 16, God tells him, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. That's in the Bible. We have to deal with that. But I want to remind you of the context of this. God promises the land to Abraham and his descendants. What was the purpose for God making them a nation and giving them the land? To send Jesus to bless all the nations of the world. Without Jesus, 
every man, woman, child, baby is damned to hell. Do you understand that? They may live a life 10, 15, 20 years, maybe 80 years, maybe some of them 100, but they die and spend eternity in hell. Everybody is doomed. Everybody is damned. God is working salvation, but there are certain nations. We don't understand everything about why these seven nations were so important, but the nations that were inhabiting the land were obviously raised up by Satan to fight against God's plan the same way that Pharaoh was raised up against the children of Israel and he tried to wipe out all the young boys to destroy the deliverer. He tried the same way that Herod tried to wipe out Jesus when he commanded all the boys two years and under to be killed. The same way that Hitler tried to wipe out God's chosen people, the Jews. Satan has fought against God's people. And for some reason, God in his wisdom, God in his righteousness, God in all of his justice commanded that these nations be permanently, completely devoted to destruction. And God is righteous in doing this. And his people are righteous in obeying God. But I want to remind you that God had been patient with this people. For 400 years, he said, their, their iniquity is not complete. I'm giving them a chance. I'm being patient with them. I'm waiting. I'm showing them mercy. But there comes a point where this God who is patient and showed grace to his enemy for 400 years, there is a limit to God's patience. He is the righteous judge. We see this in the Old Testament. In church, we see it in the New Testament. There is a point where God says enough is enough. And God will judge people and God is the righteous judge of all the earth and we can't stand in judgment with him looking at people that lived thousands of years ago and saying why did God devote them to destruction well we know some of the things that those people did they practiced animal sacrifice they practiced bestiality they practiced all forms of horrible horrible wickedness that marred the image of God in them and fought against God's people. They tried to wipe out God's people. They tried to keep Jesus the only hope of salvation from coming. And ultimately, God was preserving his people in destroying the enemies of God's people. And ultimately, the enemies of God and the people that had given themselves over fully to Satan. So what am I telling you this morning? Six things about this. That we need to know. You need to have these answers, church. You've got to be familiar with this. Number one, as the maker of all things and the ruler of all people, God has absolute rights of ownership over all people and places. Period. God is the creator. God is the king. God is the sovereign of all the universe. And he has a right to do what he wishes. Number two. God is not only the ultimate maker, ruler, and owner, but God is just and righteous in all he does. We know God's character. We know he's holy. We know he's loving. We know he's merciful, long-suffering towards his enemies. He died for his enemies. So when we see him doing something that we don't understand, that doesn't make sense, we have to step back and say, I don't have all the data. 
I don't, I don't understand what these people were doing or why they were doing it or how they were doing it that would cause God to annihilate them through his people. But I know that God is good and just and righteous and merciful. And if he did it, he was right in doing it. Number three, all of us deserve God's justice. All of us deserve God's punishment. None of us deserve God's mercy. The Israelites didn't deserve God's mercy. They deserved to be annihilated. Yet they became a people that were his prized possession and he loved them and protected them. Number four, the Canaanites were enemies of God who deserved to be punished. We could sit here and debate all day. Well, they could have just imprisoned them. They could have just done this. They could have just done that. They could have driven them out of the land. God, in all of his wisdom, knows what's best. Number five, God's actions were not an example of ethnic cleansing. God did not say, wipe out this entire ethnicity. He was wiping out nations that were rebelling and fighting against his people and threatening his plan. The Israelites were Canaanites. They were the same ethnicity as these people. This is not an ethnic cleansing. This is not a genocide. This is battling tribes, people that gave themselves over to Satan to fight against the people of God, and God judged them. Number six, the destruction of the Canaanites is a picture of the final judgment of all mankind who rejects God in hell. God is the judge. He offers salvation to all people. He's patient and merciful with all people. But those who reject him, they are condemned already because they have not received the name of the only begotten Son of God. You reject Jesus, there is no salvation. That's heavy this morning. But we have to deal with that. We see that in the book of Joshua. I could pick out the little fun stories and and teach those stories and leave out the difficult parts but we're to be equipped to have these conversations with people and many times the church is not equipping people to understand these issues i say let god be true and every man a liar everyone that raises himself up against god and god's righteousness and god's judgment they are only condemning themselves God will not be condemned. And briefly, let's talk about the themes in the book of Joshua. There's some beautiful themes in the book of Joshua. Yes, there's some difficult passages, but we also see some amazing themes. First theme, the Lord's continuing presence is the key to strength and courage. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, or or Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 all the way through verse 9. I want to read this to you. Let me, let me turn back over here. I didn't have it in my notes. Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. 
Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepared to cross over the Jordan to the land that I am giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites and west to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or abandon you. Verse 6. Be strong and courageous. For you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give to them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction of my servant Moses commanded you do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go this book of instruction must not depart from your mouth for you are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it for then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do haven't i commanded you be strong and courageous do not be afraid or discouraged for the lord your god is with you wherever you go Three different times in the opening verses of the book of Joshua, God says, be strong and courageous. Why? Because God is with his people. We can be strong and courageous this morning because God is with us. We're connected to God's promises. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the word of God that guides us. Number two, the importance of the Lord's instructions for succeeding in our mission and acting with wisdom we have to obey god's instructions god gives us his word his commands and we if we want to be successful we've got to obey god's words the next thing we see is the ability of the lord to save the outsider he he rescues rahab who was committed to destruction yet god rescues and gives salvation to this Gentile because of her faith. And this Gentile who was a prostitute ends up becoming one of the great grandmothers of the Lord Jesus. From her line comes David, the king, who's a type of Christ. From her line comes Solomon. From her line comes Jesus. She becomes Jewish. She becomes a Hebrew and she's brought into the promise. God saves outsiders. I believe this salvation was offered to to all the people, but they had rejected it and hardened their hearts as Moses did or as Pharaoh did against God and Moses. So God can save the outsider, the Gentile. But we also see that the insider, Achan, who was a Hebrew, part of God's promise He is rejected and he falls away because he disobeyed God. So God can save the Gentile and the outsider, but just because you're born ethnically a Jew did not mean that you were automatically a child of Abraham and according to his promises. Many of the Jews rejected God's promises. The next theme we see is the Lord is the divine warrior And that he is the just judge of all the earth. He brings judgment. God is the divine warrior. Do you worship God as being the warrior? 
Do you worship God for being the righteous judge of all the earth who does things that you don't even understand and that you wouldn't even have the strength and courage to do? I do. I celebrate him as that. Yes, I celebrate him as the lamb that was slain on the cross. He's dying, shedding his blood for his enemies. But I also worship him in church. We also worship him as the warrior who's coming back in power and victory and a sword comes out of his mouth and consumes all the nations that fight against him. Our Lord is a divine warrior. We see the danger of failing to ask the Lord. In the example of, of making the covenant with the, with the pagan people who deceived the children of Israel, it says in verse chapter 9, verse 14, So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. When they made this, this covenant with the Gibeonites, they did it based on what they saw and what they heard. But the Gibeonites tricked them. And it puts this verse in here for our edification to teach us we need to ask the Lord. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. When we do things apart from God's counsel, we get into trouble. So we need to remember there's a danger of failing to ask the Lord. We see the Lord as protector of the covenant. God makes a covenant with his people. The people are unfaithful, but God continues to protect the covenant. We see the unity of God's people as a theme in chapter 18 and chapter 22. God's people are to be unified. We see the sovereignty of God in giving his people a place and a rest. We see the faithfulness of God in fulfilling all of his good promises. And we see the necessity of removing false gods and idols and worshiping God alone. These themes repeat throughout the book of Joshua, reminding us how we should live as God's people. The next thing I want you to see is the Christ connection. And I'm about to wrap this up. The Christ connection. Christ appeared to Joshua. Jesus appeared to Joshua. In chapter 5, verse 13. For sake of time, I'm not going to read all of this. But the story is that when Joshua sees this man with a sword, this warrior, he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And this is what Jesus said. He said, no, neither. But I am the commander of the Lord's army. And now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The other place where we see that happening to Moses is when Moses was in God's presence at the burning bush. So here are five ways that Christ is a better Joshua. Joshua was a type of Christ, but Jesus was a better Joshua. Number one, Joshua and Jesus, it's the same name, and it means the Lord saves. The Lord is our salvation. Jesus is a better Joshua in that he is the Lord. And while Joshua saved them and rescued them from the enemies in the land, Jesus saves us for all eternity. He died on the cross to be our Lord and Savior. He rescues us from our sins. He rescues us from God's wrath. He rescues us and saves us from condemnation. Number two. Joshua gave the Israelites rest through the military victories. But we see that 
in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews goes into detail and he says that Jesus gave a greater Sabbath rest for the people of God. Jesus was able to do what Joshua could not do. He gave us Sabbath rest, permanent spiritual rest through his finished work on the cross. Joshua was a type of that. Jesus fulfilled that. Number three, Joshua gives Israel what Moses couldn't, the promised land. Moses wasn't able to bring the children of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. Joshua did that. Jesus also gives us what the law of Moses could not give us. God's full and eternal salvation. Number four, in times of conflict, Joshua interceded for his people. Jesus is continually interceding for his people. We see this in Luke 22, 32 and Hebrews 7, 25. Jesus is praying for us. Number five, Joshua leads God's people into the promised land and into their rest. Jesus leads his people into God's promised inheritance. And ultimately, one day he will lead us into the rest of the new creation, which will be free from sin, free from death, free from division and strife and fighting. And it will be ruled by the glory of God. Jesus will be King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will sit on the throne and will rule on the throne of David. And I love this verse in Joshua chapter 21, verse 45, that tells us of how faithful God is. It says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Church, all of God's promises are true. All God's promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. So for our application this morning, I want to read from chapter 24, from Joshua's final speech to the nation. And these are his dying words. Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. For if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's our application this morning. Everything that happened in the book of Joshua, Joshua sums it up. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Joshua that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, has been preserved for your church this morning so we could be blessed with the truths of this word. God, deepen our faith. Lord, remind us that you are good. You are merciful. You are love, but you are also just and righteous. You are the judge of all the earth. And one day you will set everything right. And those who trust in Jesus will be forever saved and eternally blessed. And those who reject you and your provision for salvation in your son, Jesus Christ, that they will bow the knee and every tongue 
will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, even as they are being judged. Father, grow our faith this morning. Give us courage this morning. Lord, may we be decisive in our choice that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And God, I pray that for this church, this local family, this local body of believers, as for me and this church, we will serve the Lord. We will submit to your truth in a dark society, in a dark culture. We will shine the light of the gospel. And God, we ask this morning that you would send people here that can be gloriously saved and delivered and rescued through the power of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that they would come to know you, they would become disciples, and that you would send revival to the city. Because I still believe in the power of the gospel. Lord, we will serve you. And the only way we can serve you is by obeying the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples preaching the gospel. Lord, empower us to do this. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Protect us. And God, ultimately, may you be glorified as your name deserves. May Asheville be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.